Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 63 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Shannon McGuire who recently became the first woman to ever appear four times in the Hugo Ballot in a single year. She's the author of the October Day series and the Encrypted series, and under the name Mira Grant is the author of the News Flesh trilogy, set in the aftermath of a zombie apocalypse. Her latest book in that series, Blackout, is out now. Then stick around after the interview as guest geeks Matt London and Teresa DeLucci join us to discuss Ridley Scott's Prometheus. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Shannon McGuire. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first of all, you know, you write fiction as both Shannon McGuire and as Mira Grant. So could you just explain uh, why you used the two different names? So do you remember how back in, I think, the early 90s, Disney created Touchstone Pictures so that they could release R-rated movies? Basically, there was a point where Disney wanted to diversify. They wanted to start doing more things without worrying that mothers were going to say, oh, honey, look, Disney's got a new film out. It's called Reservoir Dogs. Let's take the kids. So they created Touchstone, which was a wholly owned subsidiary. It was completely open. Everyone knew that Touchstone was Disney. It was the same executive producers. It was a lot of the same writers, the same directors. And yet having that different name on the cover of the movie changed the expectations people had going in. There's never been any illusion that Mira wasn't me. Uh, when I was first writing Feed, which was the, the first book I published as Mira, I talked about it very openly on my blog, on Twitter, that I was writing this book. And it wasn't until after it was sold that I said, Mira Grant wrote this book. And the reason there was really purely marketing-based, it was so that my urban fantasy fans would see okay, this is a Mira Grant book, clearly there's a difference. And it works in reverse, too. People who would never have considered a zombie political thriller by an urban fantasy writer, really, were willing to pick up feed and take a look at it. I, um, I frequently joke, though it is not as joking as it might be, that I am actually a, uh, a rogue Disney princess that decided I liked profanity and porn and so ran away from the studio. And that is what you get out of a Shannon book. I do a lot of urban fantasy, which is modern day cities, but you've got magic, you've got fairies running around or cryptozoological creatures running around. And I'm pulling very heavily on my background as a folklore major and having done some animation work and all of that. And I'm, I'm pulling from the modern fairy tale narrative. With Mira Grant, I'm doing a lot of political and medical science fiction. And that's more drawing on the fact that I'd really like to talk to you about tapeworms while we're trying to eat raw fish. Uh, so you're on the Hugo ballot four times this year. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your Hugo nominated works? I'm on the Hugo ballot four times, and it's the first time a girl has ever done that ever. Uh, I'm on the ballot twice as myself and twice as Mira. As Mira, I've been nominated for Deadline, which is the second book in the Newsflash trilogy. The first book, Feed was on the ballot last year. And I'm also up as Mira for Countdown, which is a novella set in that same universe. When I was getting ready to the release of Deadline, when it was coming out soon, 
I decided that the appropriate way to get people excited about the book would be to write a novella in 30 pieces and publish a piece on my blog every day for a month during a convention and a week and a half long trip to New York and a doll traders expo. And I managed to do it without missing a single day. And when it was all done, my editor at Orbit was like, hey, that thing you did, you want to sell it to us? So I said, sure. And, and they bought it and they put it in the Orbit short fiction program. It's going to be coming out in physical form from Subterranean Press later this year. So I think that that actually counts as monetizing my blog. I'm very proud of that. As Seanan, I'm actually not up in any fiction categories. I am nominated for Best Fan Cast as part of the crew that does the SF Squee Cast. The other nomination under my own name uh, is actually, for me, kind of the most exciting. Um, I'm up for a Filk CD, which is called Wicked Girls. It is the first time a solo Filk CD has ever made the ballot in any category. So Filk has been a, a huge part of science fiction fandom for more than 30 years. And this is the first time that we've been able to get it representation on the Hugo ballot. So do uh, you want to just explain what Filk is for people who don't know? Filk is the folk music of the science fiction and fantasy community. Uh, you get parodies, you get traditional music that's had the words slightly modified, and you'll also get just original works that have been written about science fiction and fantasy works or with science fiction and fantasy themes. Some of it is silly sing-alongs. Some of it is really big, dramatic, heartbreaking stuff. I love the Filk community. It's, it's the single most welcoming part of fandom that I've ever encountered. And I mean, Filk saved my life a lot of times when I was a teenager. It was always somewhere I could go. And that's, I think, the strength of the Filk community, that no matter whether you sing, you play, you just want to listen, as long as you want to be there, they want you to be there. So your latest Mira Grant book is called Blackout, which is the third book in the News Flash trilogy. Could you just kind of give us some background uh, on that setting? So the basic concept behind the Newsflash trilogy is that in 2014, uh, the zombie apocalypse happened. And it took us about three years, but around 2017, 2018, we actually managed to win. A lot of people died. A lot of land was permanently ceded. But we came out on top. So 20 years pass. You have an entire generation of people that have grown up in a world where zombies just are. They're not something special. They're not something exciting. They just are. And people go on. People do what they do. Um, the Newsflash trilogy actually follows a pair of bloggers, primarily, Sean and Georgia Mason. They are what is considered orphans of the rising, which means that their biological families all died when the zombies rose, and they were adopted together and became professional bloggers. Uh, because it is the blog community that, when the dead actually started walking, was willing to stand up and say, the dead are walking, we have a problem here, rather than just kind of going, oh, it's the flu, oh, it's something, we don't know what it is, but we'll deal with it. Feed follows the political campaign of Senator Peter Ryman as he is running to be the Republican candidate for the President of the United States. 
And Sean and Georgia and their friend Buffy have been selected to be his campaign bloggers to basically follow him through this process. Deadline picks up where that left off. And it's dealing with the aftermath of the political campaign. And Blackout is sort of bringing those two things together. Uh, So the zombie virus in your books is described in great detail. Uh, How'd you go about inventing that? In order to come up with the Kellis Amberley virus, I read enough books on horrible viruses to qualify for some kind of horrible extra credit program, audited a bunch of courses at UC Berkeley and at the California Academy of Sciences, and then started phoning the CDC persistently and asking them horrible questions. Now, back to Filk, I wrote a song several years ago called The Black Death, which is a schoolhouse rock type song about the epidemiological, anthropological origins of the Black Death and why I do not believe that it can have been bubonic plague, uh, because I subscribe to the hemorrhagic fever theory of the, of the Black Death. This is a really bizarre little song, but it has managed to get me some fascinating connections in the epidemiological world. The first time I called the CDC, I said that I wanted to talk to someone about possibly designing a zombie virus. You know, I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. And the lady who answered the phone was like, "Eh." I said, okay, my name's Shauna McGuire. Can I leave a number? Can I do this? And she went, wait, are you the Black Death Girl? Yeah. She says, sing for me. So Mm -hmm. I sang the Black Death for the receptionist at the CDC, uh, at which point she actually helped me find people to talk to. Every time I came up with a new iteration of Kellis Amberley, I would call back and say, if I did this, 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 and this, could I raise the dead? And every single time they would say no. (laughs) I'd say, okay, hang up and go back to working. And uh, after about the 17th time, I called and said, if I did this, 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 and this, could I raise the dead? And got, don't, don't do that. And at that point, I knew I had a viable virus. (laughs) The final iteration, Kellis Amberley, is actually a chimera virus resulting in, resulting from the union of a genetically engineered strain of Marburg, which is a, it's a filovirus, it's related to Ebola, meeting up with a genetically engineered coronavirus, which is one of the common cold viruses. The Marburg was designed to cure cancer, basically. It's something that you're supposed to get in your body and just keep there. And any time that you develop cancerous cells, the Marburg will wake up, begin reproducing, and eat them. Then the coronavirus portion, which is the amber, is the Kellis portion, rather, was designed as a cure for the common cold. And it's supposed to be a pernicious infection. Basically, it's a shifting antigen base. It gets into your body, and it never, ever leaves. Because it treat, your immune system winds up treating the Kellis infection as a part of the immune system. It doesn't fight it off. The Kellis infection is self-replicating. And that shifting antigen means that it's continually finding new food sources. It's supposed to prevent other infections from getting into your body because it's taking up all of the available space. Well, when those two viruses met, they had babies. And what you got was a shifting antigen flu that does not leave the body under any circumstances, but is capable of turning into something that converts human tissue into more of the virus. And that's how we got Kellis Amberley, which makes zombies. So I've I've heard you say that the modern lack of respect for basic health and quarantine procedures makes you want to scream. No one respects quarantine anymore. Nobody comprehends quarantine. And absolutely nobody comprehends the fact that sometimes your 
rights and liberties do not have any fucking place in this conversation. We have totally drug-resistant tuberculosis. And what do people with totally drug-resistant tuberculosis do? Do they lock themselves in their houses for the rest of their lives? Do they eat a bullet? No! They get on airplanes. And then they get pissed off when the CDC yells at them. Quarantine exists so that we can continue as a species to exist. And yes, it sucks if I say to you, dude, really sorry, had to shoot your wife, had the totally drug-resistant tuberculosis, yo. But you know what sucks more? Killing an elementary school because you went outside with your totally drug-resistant tuberculosis. The Crazies, a fantastic movie, was built entirely on the precept that you should break quarantine. Like, that's <laughs> just what you should do. I think I may have been the only person in that theater that was rooting for the government. I liked our heroes. They were nice people. It's not their fault. But at the end of the day, when you're in the contamination zone, sometimes it doesn't matter if it's your fault. So, you know, my, my dad just read Feed, and his reaction was that he could believe that a virus could reanimate the dead, but he had a harder time believing that anyone could make a living as a blogger. Uh, what do you think about that? There are already people that are essentially making a living as bloggers, that are, that are already beginning to make a living in the new media. It's not a great living. I mean, none of the people that are presented in Feed are getting really wealthy off of what they do, unless it's off of merchandising and counter hits. But keep in mind that in the feed world, Blogger now contains a lot of different subcategories. Buffy, who is one of the main characters in that first book, is essentially a romance writer who sells her work through their blog. Georgia is a political and factual reporter. She syndicates her articles. She sells advertising. She makes very little money. Whereas her brother, who is an I will do stupid shit if you will just give me more page hits and buy more t-shirts blogger, makes about everything the two of them bring home together. So we actually did work on the economy of, of my blogosphere fairly intensively. It probably does not hold up to the internet as it is now. Because when I was first writing feed and setting up this world, Facebook was pretty small and there was no Twitter. But I think you could make it work if you had to. So as someone who has a popular blog yourself, do you have any advice how to go about creating a popular blog in the real world? I see a lot of authors, like a lot of authors, who have been told, you need to create a blog, you, you need to have an internet presence, you need to do this thing, who just set out and they, they create a blog, and all it is is buy my book over and over again, all the time. Now, I'm not talking about the two weeks leading up to your book's release. That is really the time at which buy my book, buy my book, buy my book is kind of a reasonable statement. I'm talking about 100% of the time. And there is nothing of that person in that blog. Now, I don't think anyone is 100% honest all the time on the Internet. There is an element of self-censorship, but there's also an element of you have to be a person. You have to talk about who you are and be who you are, or you risk becoming nothing more than a persona. And I think the internet is pretty clever in terms of, of knowing when you are being a persona rather than being a person. 
Any general advice on how to deal with uh, hostile comments online? In March of this past year, the physical edition of my new book, Discount Armageddon, was released almost a month early. People started receiving this book. And that was fine. I wasn't fine. I was very upset. But things happen. It's not your fault. Except that the ebook was not released at the same time. And someone somewhere told some message board that I was being a horrible, greedy cunt and withholding the ebook to try and force people to buy the physical edition. The amount of hate mail I received in a 24 hour period exceeded the previous 18 months. I was called a greedy cunt. I was called a stupid whore. Pretty much any variation of cunt, whore, or bitch that you can come up with was applied to me directly. I had several offers to rape the stupid out of me. Uh, I had one particular master of the rape threat threaten to rape my best friend in front of me repeatedly so that I would understand his position. Somehow raping my best friend is equal to you not getting an ebook when you want it, uh, when, when you want it is prior to the release date. And I looked at that and I looked at the fact that I was crying so hard I was shaking and I said, you know what? That's why I have a personal assistant. And I gave the password to that email box to my PA and told her not to let me see anything. Uh, And that was the only way I could get through that process. And in case you're going, well, I don't have a PA, everyone for this purpose can have a PA fairly easily. You go to your friend, you go to your brother, you go to someone you trust, you be prepared to change the password on that email box when you're done. And you say, hey, you know, John, This is the situation. These are the emails I am getting. Can you please monitor this inbox for me for the next week? Okay, so your short story, Everglades, appeared in John's zombie anthology, The Living Dead 2. Could you tell us what that story was about? Something that frustrates me a lot in zombie fiction, quite frequently, is that everyone is instantly a hero. You almost never see anybody who looks at this situation and looks at this world and says, you know what? Um, Peace out, yo, I'm done. And I really wanted to follow that character for a little while. I wanted to show what happens when someone realizes that the world has just undergone a sea change and they're not ready to evolve with it. So Everglades was kind of my evolution piece. It was this character standing at the beginning of the zombie apocalypse. They don't know if there's a cure. They don't know if there's a salvation. What they know is that a lot of people are dead and that even if the cure comes tomorrow, they'll be rebuilding for 15, 20 years, that this has been a huge, huge disaster. Uh, So apparently the Defense Department and the CDC both actually have uh, zombie response plans. Uh, what uh, What do you think of their plans? So you have to understand that the the zombie defense plans in question, they're actually quite good plans. But if you really read them, they are quite good plans explaining how we can shoot several thousand unarmed civilians if necessary. <laughs> and that is a lot of the motivation for having them. Mm. Um, creating a zombie defense plan is an acceptable way of saying, okay, if we need to clear 3,000 people out from the area in front of the White House... What's our plan of attack there, guys? You know, how are we going to do it? Now, if you want some good reading, pick up a copy of the 2011 Canadian Pandemic Preparedness Manual. One of the best things that's ever happened to me on an airplane in my life is I was sitting on a plane next to this lady and I was reading uh, Parasite Rex, 
which is Carl Zimmer's beautiful, beautiful book on parasitism in humans and other creatures. And uh, the lady next to me commented that she had read that book. She liked it. I, I asked her her name. What did she do? And she was one of the people who had worked on the Canadian pandemic preparedness plan. So we spent the entire flight from California to Massachusetts happily talking about stacking dead bodies in hockey ranks and, you know, how would we deal with certain outbreaks? And it, it wasn't until we started to land that we realized we had just spent an entire plane ride <laughs> gleefully discussing these things. Uh, actually, speaking of parasites, I heard you say in an interview that you believe that you're one of the people who believe that the lack of hookworms explains peanut allergy. Could you explain how that works? The hygiene hypothesis basically holds that the ongoing rise of allergies and autoimmune disorders is connected to the fact that we have reduced the contaminants in our environment at an unnaturally fast rate. So we spent millennia evolving immune systems to cope with parasitic infection, to cope with having things squirming around in and biting on us all the freaking time. And then we took them away essentially overnight. So our immune systems are basically really, really fucking bored five-year-old boys standing in rooms full of breakable things, and they have baseball bats. Uh, there have been some really fascinating scientific studies done, several of which are fairly conclusive. Uh, my favorite is the Venezuelan study, where they were able to take two genetically essentially identical populations, one living in the city environment, one living outside the city environment, and test them for incidents of allergies and autoimmune disorders. And they actually were able to chart a pretty much one-to-one -one correlation between lives outside the city, has a parasitic infection, has no allergies, lives inside the city, has no parasitic infection, has lots of allergies. So there is some very strong scientific support for the hygiene hypothesis and for the idea that controlled reintroduction of parasites to the human body is a way to deal with all of these conditions. Uh, there have also been some folks who, because humans will always be smart this way, uh, have been experimenting on themselves and have been, you know, going out and getting themselves some hookworms uh, to find out if it would work. And for the most part, they are in fact finding that it will work and it will control their allergies right up until they inevitably let their hookworm population get out of control and have an exciting new problem to contend with which is, you know, hookworms, they're not your friends. That's actually the topic of the Numira Grant duology I'm writing, uh, which is called Forced Evolutions, and it's about the hygiene hypothesis and genetically engineered parasites and uh, lots of other fun things that have made me the world's best dinner table conversationalist for the last year. Are those in the pipeline? Are they coming out anytime soon? Yeah, I actually, the at the beginning of our of our little pre-interview chat, I said I had finished a book last night, and the book I finished was Parasite, the first of those two. Um, they've been sold to Orbit, and uh, I believe the plan is that Parasite will be out next year. Uh, so you mentioned earlier how uh, you and some of your uh, writer friends uh, started up the podcast called uh, Sweecast. Um, so how did that idea first come about, and, and what kind of topics do you cover? And, and so just give people an idea what the show's like. So um, in Australia, in 2010, they held the Worldcon. And because it was an Australian Worldcon, they were very generous with certain panel spaces because, well, it, it was a, a small convention in terms of Worldcons, and so they had a lot of room to fill. And this led to Paul Cornell and I being given an entire slot just to talk about Fringe. 
not to lead a discussion, not to involve other people in any meaningful way. Just Seanan and Paul are going to have a conversation about Fringe and y'all can watch. And so we, in fact, had a conversation about Fringe and a lot of people showed up to watch and it was surprisingly a lot of fun. And uh, last year, we were chatting on Twitter, talking about how much fun we had had in Australia and, and how great it was to sit down with someone who loved a thing that you loved. And so we're talking on Twitter about how much fun this was and how we wish we could do it again. And we'll probably never convince another world con to let us do that. But God, that was great. And Lynn Thomas saw us having this conversation and went, well, you know, we could do a podcast. The next thing we know, Lynn's given us instructions on what microphones to buy and Kat Valenti and Elizabeth Bear, who are good friends of ours, have been roped into this and we're meeting once a month to talk about things. Basically, what we cover is what do we want to cover? So for each podcast, we will each come in with a topic and that topic will be a thing that we want to be positive about this recording session. And then anyone else who has any experience with the topic will chime in and give their opinions on things. Okay, great. And so finally, just are there any other recent or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Blackout just came out. Um, I've got my first book with Subterranean coming out this October, which I'm, I'm very excited about. They're publishing a print edition of Countdown. I have a new novella coming out on July 11th. It's called San Diego 2014, The Last Stand of the California Browncoats. Uh, it is a newsflesh universe novella and was sort of my exercise in giving Orbit's legal department fits. Because when you come in and say, I want to set something at a comic convention, so two-thirds of the characters will be running around dressed as representatives of other people's licensed properties. Is that okay? <laughs> um, they, they kind of make this little squeaking noise deep in their throats. And that was maybe mean of me, but it was so much fun. Then I have the, the sixth book, because I, I also write, not just Mira. And the sixth book in my ongoing urban fantasy series, the October Day Books, is coming out this upcoming September. Uh, I have a Toby Day book in September and then an encrypted book in March. Okay, great. So, Shannon McGuire, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thanks for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Shannon McGuire for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for the second half of the show today, we'll be talking about Ridley Scott's Prometheus. And since this is such a controversial movie with so many different opinions, we have not one but two guest geeks joining us today, so we can get a whole range of opinions. So our first guest geek you might remember from such episodes is episode 51 and 52, where we talked about upcoming movie adaptations. He's Matt London, an author and multimedia designer. He's a graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop and the New York University School of Film and Television. He's written about film, video games, and other stuff for Tor.com, Fantasy Magazine, Lightspeed, and Realms of Fantasy. You can follow him on Twitter at TheMattLondon. And our second guest geek joining us is joining us for the very first time. Teresa DeLucci is a regular contributor to Tor.com. She covers True Blood, Game of Thrones, and is also an avid gamer. She's also covered tech and TV for GeekDress.com and Action Flick Chick. And you can follow her on Twitter at T. Delucci. 
Okay, so I'm, we're going to start out, I think, in Matt. You went to film school, right? Uh, just tell us, uh, give us a little context for this movie, Prometheus. Uh, what was, why are people excited about it? What was sort of the hype leading up into it? Prometheus is a sort of, kind of, maybe prequel, sort of, kind of, maybe sequel of the 1979 film Alien, um, which by most people's standards is one of the greatest horror films, greatest sci-fi films, greatest films of all time. The film Alien uh, was directed by Ridley Scott, and he's um, sort of back in charge of this new Prometheus project. He's a producer and the director, um, so people are pumped to sort of get back to the roots of the Alien franchise, which is sort of, um, by most fan standards, taken a detour in the last couple of installments, or four installments if you count the two um, Alien versus Predator movies. Um, I'll give you a little bit more context on on Ridley Scott himself. He's probably one of the most famous working filmmakers, sort of an auteur director. Um, he's been nominated for three Oscars. He's one of, I, I think, the best sort of genre sci-fi fantasy directors that there, that there is. He directed Alien, Blade Runner, Legend, Gladiator, um, and the famous Apple computer commercial from the 1984 Super Bowl. Do we know anything about the origins of this movie? Like, did it, did, did, who suggested that they should do an alien prequel? Like, where did the script come from? Did they, was there any, like, was there an existing script that someone decided ought to be fit into the alien franchise? Does anyone know anything about that? Well, what I had read was that this was actually, the concept was something that got cut out of the original alien movie. A deleted scene of coming onto and exploring more of the space jockey's ship. Uh, Ridley Scott had a whole movie kind of planned around that back in 1979, but they had to cut that part out of the final version, and they never filmed it, but it was in the script where we find out more about the space jockey and how it came to that planet. I think one thing that's probably going to come up a lot with this is that the script was co-written by Damon Lindelof <laughs> and seems to have his <laughs> fingerprints all over it. Do you, Do we know what stage he came into the project? Yeah, so quite late in the process, um, really Scott had been working with another writer, John Spates, for quite a while. Um, there was finished draft. There might have been several drafts um, before Damon Lindelof was brought on board. Um, there's a really in-depth interview with Damon Lindelof on, I think, theverve.com that he goes into great detail, sort of narrating his experience working on the project. The way he tells it is that John Spates had done a ton of work and that when he came on, it was sort of to reimagine the draft that had already been written and that through several meetings with Ridley Scott, Ridley Scott basically dictated the entire film to him, which made the writing process incredibly easy. Anyone who's curious about the production of this film should really watch that interview because um, not only does he talk at great length about working on Prometheus with Ridley Scott, but also there's like a like a 30-minute debate between Lindelof and the interviewer about the ending of Lost. Okay, so Matt, maybe could you just give us some context for people who don't follow this as closely on Damon Lindelof and Lost and how that's affecting people's expectations and or reactions to the movie? So Damon Lindelof is the co-creator and uh, one of the showrunners of the TV show Lost. He was basically the primary architect of that entire show. It was a show that people obsessed over, that they poured a lot of themselves into week to week, that they loved, that was really addictive television. I'm a gigantic Lost fan. 
And uh, the ending of Lost was somewhat controversial. And a number of fans felt cheated by the ending or didn't like the ending. So Lindelof sort of became the target of that frustration. So in the case of Prometheus, what's happening is people who watch the movie and don't like it blame him. Uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to blame it all on Damon Lindelof. And I think honestly, I think there's enough blame to go around. Uh, there's plenty <laughs> wrong with the movie. There's a lot of people that were involved with it, as you say. Um, I do wonder how there aren't any people who were who speak up and, and say, hey, you know what? This part doesn't actually make any sense. Uh, maybe we should do something about that. And, you know, I blame those people. Right. Because, you know, hey, it's hard to write a movie, I'm sure. And uh, there's lots of other people who are watching it come together that surely should be from their outsider point of view, be able to say, you know, I'm watching this and I'm involved with the process. So I know more about it, more about it than the average viewer will. And I don't understand what the hell's happening. Um, you know, maybe somebody could have uh, spoken up at some point. You know, I'm just saying. OK, so we know John didn't like the movie. The cards are on the table there. Uh, Teresa, what were your overall overall feelings about the movie? I really enjoyed it. I actually watched it twice. You know, the first time my expectations were sky high. I think everybody who walked into this movie on opening weekend, their expectations were really high if they enjoy the Alien franchise at all. You know, to see another movie from Ridley Scott in this universe and to explore some of the mysteries. Where did the alien come from? Where did the space jockey come from? Who are, you know, who is that race? But this is the movie we got. It's not the movie we expected it to be. So you have to look at it without your expectations. And the second time I saw it, I did enjoy it a lot more. What do you think are just some of the strengths, of the strong points of this movie? Michael Fassbender, <laughs> hands down. He was the best part of the movie. I could have watched a whole movie just about David alone on the Prometheus for two years, watching Lawrence of Arabia and giving himself highlights. <laughs> I, I really thought that was fascinating. His performance was perfect. His walk, his facial expressions, the way he barely concealed his hatred for some of the humans on board the ship, especially Holloway, but just in general, you know, and the contempt he had for his creator. I thought that was fascinating. The movie was gorgeous to look at. The 3D, this was the first time I've ever actually enjoyed 3D in a movie. I didn't like it in Avatar. I really liked it here. Definitely, in some cases, you know, people's complaints about it are completely valid, and I had a lot of them too. But overall, I mean, I've been thinking about it since I saw it. And just having a really good time talking to people about what they think of it and hearing other theories. I agree with a lot of what Teresa's saying. I thought that Michael Fassbender's performance was captivating. I was also really impressed with Numi Rapace's work. And, I mean, it, it was masterfully directed, I thought, on a scene-to-scene -scene level. It's really nice to be able to watch. I mean, as, a, as someone who studied film and makes film, I find watching an incredibly skilled director at the height of his talent operating, it's just, it's a marvel to see. You know, a lot of people have talked about the opening of the film, and just how yes. breathtaking those landscapes are. Um, Absolutely. I'm not without my criticisms of the film, and I think that John and I will agree that there were a, several incoherent moments in the story. I have a suspicion that a lot of this film 
ended up on the cutting room floor. And we sort of know actually from uh, Ridley Scott's past science fiction work that there's a whole different cut of Alien, uh, which you can buy on DVD. And, uh, you know, the sort of notorious butchering that the original theatrical cut of Blade Runner got uh, when it was in the studio's hands. I suspect that it probably was not to the same extent in this case, but there were a number of scenes, um, transitions from scene to scene in this film that, uh, in, in the film Prometheus, that felt like there were scenes missing in between. Scenes where characters suddenly have knowledge that they did not have at all in a previous scene. Or characters would be in one state in a scene and then in the very next scene would be in a totally different state and have totally different opinions about something. My reaction was sort of, I mean, we saw this movie in IMAX 3D, which was unbelievable. Uh, I can't emphasize enough how amazing this looked in IMAX 3D. And while I was watching it, I had a great time watching it. And there was sort of, you know, every once in a while, I'd be like, ah, that character did something that doesn't make any sense. That character did something stupid. That doesn't make sense. But I was actually enjoying the movie pretty much all the way through. And it wasn't until afterward that I started actually sort of analyzing it. And the more I thought about it, the more and more it started to really bug me and start to make me kind of angry. But so I think I sort of fall between Matt and, and John uh, and how much I liked it. But so, John, uh, let loose. What's uh, what's wrong with this movie? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not it's not entirely fair to say that like I, like I hated it or anything. I didn't hate it. I, I mean, I, I really think it's like the most successful movie I've ever seen that doesn't actually make any sense. And like you, I mean, I think I, I was enjoying I was enjoying the experience of watching it. I think that's largely because, as Matt was saying, that it's really expertly directed. Um, and as we've also said, the performances are really good. You know, the script is where everything falls apart for me because there's too much of it that doesn't make sense. And uh, also on a sort of a, a quibble note, um, have the producers of this movie ever actually seen an old person? Because that's like the worst old person makeup I've ever seen. I mean, it's actually, I mean, to be fair, it's on par with the old person makeup in Inception, which is also, which is like, I think the only thing I don't like about Inception. But I mean, like, th those are terrible, terrible old people makeups. It's also particularly stupid because we don't actually ever see that actor without the old person makeup on. And I heard that was because they cut some scenes out where they actually show him as a young man, because that's actually Guy Pierce. And, and to be fair, it's a good makeup in the sense that I don't recognize him as Guy Pierce, but he doesn't look like an old person. He looks like an alien or something, <laughs> which is really bad in a science fiction movie. Uh, I think the, the, the biggest part of the movie that bugs me is like, you know, something that they actually even call out in the movie, which is like, you know, hey, uh, what about evolution? It's like, uh, when they're talking about going to find their creators, uh, one of the scientists actually says, yeah, oh, well, you know, you're just, so you're just throwing out 300 years of evolution. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, apparently they do because it's like it turns out that the that these these engineers did engineer humanity. I don't I can't speak for Teresa, but I know that John and and Dave and I sort of all have similar spiritual views. But I I feel like I, I don't know, I kind of came down on the other side of this that it's okay that like there was um I think it was Andrew Sullivan at the the Daily Beast was talking about it as a as a deeply Christian film. And that the the story is really about sacrifice of a great entity to allow for the life and salvation of the human race. 
I don't think that it negates evolution at all. I feel like the opening scene of the film clearly shows that this being drinks the poison to make him sort of the the spark of life that that starts evolution on the planet Earth. I mean, it's not like the little DNA bonds disintegrate in the in the water and then reform into a full-grown human person or like an australopithecus or anything like that. Assuming that scene or something like it kicked off life on Earth, the first thing is that that's 3.5 billion years ago. You know, that's that's assuming that the engineers are around, essentially unchanged for 3.5 billion years. That's a really long time. And then the idea that uh, of panspermia, that organic materials on Earth are of extraterrestrial origin, is sort of fringy, but it's it's not totally outside the realm of possibility. So I would be able to get on board with that. But the idea that what seems to me to be plainly indicated by the film or suggested by the film is that, you know, we share the DNA with the engineers. So somehow all of evolution was directed toward us, uh, which is the sort of intelligent design idea, which I find very pernicious in the real world. And there's just ab- it's just absolutely at odds with all science and evidence and dinosaurs <laughs> and everything. You know what I mean? Jesus riding on a dinosaur. <laughs> Well, let's let's talk about is this a movie in the Alien franchise, and if so, how? I mean, what do you guys think about that? In that interview with Damon Lindelof that you should all see, he says that in answer to this question of is it a prequel, what is the movie, he says that it exists in the same universe as Alien, but that were there to be a sequel to Prometheus, that film would not be Alien. And, you know, right. from the ending of Prometheus, it's kind right. of obvious. It's, it's very obvious what the sequel to Prometheus would be. Um, so, you know, it's sort of like it's, it's its own franchise, uh, but exists in the same universe, which I think is kind of cool. There have not been many films that have been able to sort of tackle that kind of twist on the sequel. And I, I it's always cool, I think, to see Hollywood experiment even a little bit because they so rarely do. Uh, and it has been officially announced, right? That it has has it been officially announced that they actually are doing a Prometheus too? I thought I heard that. No, I haven't heard anything about that, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, one of the criticisms I heard of this movie, which I kind of agree with, is that at the beginning it's like we're gonna we're setting off to find our creators to get some answers, and then the ending of the movie is we're setting off to find our creators to get some answers, and <laughs> the movie hasn't really gone anywhere. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, I was waiting the whole movie to finally meet this living engineer and hear what it had to say for itself. And we never got that. It never spoke a word. You know, there's like 25 minutes that have been cut. One of them is that scene where David talks to the engineer and they have a full back and forth conversation why they would cut that out of the movie, you know, and leave in like Yannick and Vickers flirting with each other. I don't think that was maybe the best choice. The characters do seem weird in this movie. <laughs> yes. The way that they don't yes. in, like, like comparing this to Aliens is sort of the most obvious comparison. And the characters in Aliens feel very human and their motives feel very human. You know, they're like, oh, there's aliens around. Let's get some weapons and lock the doors and stuff, you know. You know, there are many stark differences between the the cast of Alien and the cast of Prometheus. The ca- I mean, the cast of Alien is principally 
blue collar people who just want the next paycheck, who don't want to deal with any BS and are just trying to get on day to day. You know, they're truckers, essentially. Whereas, and they all know each other. And they all know each other. Whereas the cast of Prometheus are PhDs, billionaires, um, scientists who are all strangers and don't like each other. It's a lot of contrasts. And I, I actually find that PhDs and billionaires as characters in film, particularly Hollywood film, tend to be very alienating. Audiences well, tend not to like those characters. And they do like people that have fuzzy dice hanging from hmm. their uh, rearview mirrors. Well, I mean, I think the troubling thing about the way the characters act in Prometheus is that as scientists, I don't believe they act like scientists at all. They they do incredibly, incredibly stupid things. Yeah, they like, act like movie scientists. Yeah, well, like in the worst possible way. Actually, uh, before we recorded this, I found this video that I, I emailed to the gang, and, and maybe we can get this posted on, on Wired, but uh, it's just called Prometheus Pre-Prequel. Um, it's this little short film, and um, it's basically like science class for the scientists in Prometheus, <laughs> and it's just like, it's so ridiculous. Like when you point it, when it's pointed out in this comedic way, it's like, uh, it's like, it just highlights everything that's wrong with the, with the way they behave in the movie. It's like, what do you do when you first encounter an alien species for the first time? It's like, you know, don't wait, investigate. You know, it's like, don't, don't wait for help or, or get back up or anything. Just go run right over there and, and see what it is. And like, you know, when you see a weird alien snake monster, put your face right next to it. See what happens then. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just so frustrating. Like the way they behave, it just it doesn't make any sense. The the best uh, statement I heard about this, I think it was actually in, in Genevieve Valentine's review of the film, talking about how uh, the Charlize Theron character, Meredith Vickers, portrays a lot of the same traits that Ripley portrays in Alien. She's like, not on my ship, gotta decontaminate, don't mess with that thing, stick to the mission, be safe, be cautious. Mm-hmm. And that in Alien, those qualities are all rewarded as she's the star and hero mm-hmm. of the film and um uh in this you know she's punished for those qualities which seems really bad like a bad message the thing that i spotted as being the most absurd thing even worse than the sticking your face right in front of the snake monster what makes no sense is that the guy whose job is to build a map of the structure that they're investigating <laughs> gets lost trying yeah. <laughs> to find his way out. He's there to build the map. He has the flying robots that create the map. He has the map and he gets lost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and the Holloway in particular bothered me as acting not at all like a scientist, uh, you know, taking his helmet off, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, God. Like if, if just if anyone's listening to this, please, please never make a movie in which the character takes their helmet off for no reason. It seems to happen in every bad science fiction movie. But but even more than that, the the part where you know they've found this amazing extraterrestrial artifact and and all this stuff, and and he's just like, oh, I'm so sad. I wanted to talk to an alien. <laughs> and it's like nothing like you can't imagine a scientist acting like this like just this is the like the biggest scientific discovery of all time they would be ecstatic over even like the smallest pile of junk alien junk or, or anything like that you know how let's see john you just saw this like yesterday or the day before or something right yeah have you yeah, read yesterday. any of the online theories or anything no no I, I avoided everything and i haven't gone and since i didn't like it i i didn't i haven't gone to like read stuff about it afterward 
So can, do you have any coherent explanation for what the, the engineers want or why they're doing anything or, or anything along those lines? The only thing I can figure is that they, they created us and then they realized we were bad or something and they decided to destroy us or something. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea. Uh, Teresa or Matt, have you read any? Yeah, I have. There's been um, a really long article going around online. I found it on IMDb. It's uh, Cavalorn. Cavalorn, I'm not sure. He keeps a WordPress blog. And he had a whole really long spiel about creation myths, you know, God sacrificing themselves to plant the seed of life, which is what I thought the beginning of the movie was, and different religious imagery used throughout the movie. So when I went into Prometheus the first time, you know, I obviously hadn't read any of that. I wanted to avoid spoilers at all costs. But the second time I went in with some of that stuff in mind. And yeah, definitely colored how I saw the movie. So, so Matt, did you, have you read any of the? A little bit. I I mean, I kind of felt like I understood everything by the end of the movie. I mean, I kind of got, you know, the basic idea, you know, John, so. Also, before we did this, John passed around a great infographic, which I hope we can also link to, of the different uh, equations that result in the various alien mutations. I mean, I felt like that all made sense to me by the end of the film. It was weird. I don't I mean, I don't know how you engineer something like that to happen. But. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't feel like I had I didn't really feel like I had a lot of unanswered questions at the end of the film. So what, why did the engineers create humans and why did they want to destroy them? They created them because they could. I think David has a line about that in the, in the film. Um, where he, I think when he's talking to Holloway, he implies that, you know, why did, he says, why did you create us? And Holloway says something like, because we could. And David's response is like, well, same reason. You know, why, that's why the engineers would do it to you. And then they destroy them because they're evil. That they see that humans are awful and need to purge them from the earth. I mean, the engineers visit Earth in prehistoric times and draw right. little star maps on caves. And humans so, are as evil then as they are now, right? I guess, yeah. I mean, I, you know, so based on what I knew leaving the theater, I could not answer that question. But having now read some of the stuff, it sounds like there was a lot of deleted stuff. And I think. Ridley Scott also mentioned this in the interview that apparently Jesus was an engineer um, and that he was sent to Earth as like a peace broker to try to get everyone to get along. And that when they killed him, that was the last straw for the engineers. And they said, OK, well, they killed our emissary. So now we're, we're going to destroy them with this bioweapon. So what stopped them from doing it? I mean, what the hell? I mean, well, we it have looks done anything and- based on the holographic projections on the ship it looks like the killing thing that they created got out so what were there only like five engineers what the hell where are the where's the rest of the race isn't there another planet that has other engineers on it aren't there like lots of different ships with aliens with with, with engineers on it i mean what? um i don't well, know john <laughs> lv426 that's right there were a number of other planets where they were also developing these weapons, and obviously on these other planets, they also went horribly wrong. So, no, it doesn't answer those questions. That's why David and uh, and Shaw are out there trying to get the answers. So, um, are, are speaking of the other of the other moon that Teresa cited, uh, are, are we are we left to believe that at the end of the movie, when Shaw and David take off on that ship, 
and they fly off, like that's going to be the ship that crashes into, was it LV-26? LV-426. LV-426. No, because there was no space jockey flying it. Well, hmm, that we know of right <laughs> now. Yep. But no, the one that they found in Alien had been fossilized. It had been dead a really long time. Since oh, right. probably before Prometheus, so no. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the opening space shot where, where the spaceship's sort of flying, uh, you know, toward the star field is just looks stunning. Uh, I thought the ship design looked great. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know enough science to, to say whether or not that's a feasible starship design, but it looked cool. Didn't look, uh, immediately ridiculous. And, you know, just like I, I thought all of the design stuff just like really looked believable and, and, and felt real. You weren't bothered by the fact that they have one ship that's both an interstellar starship and that lands on the planet? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess that's a little that's a little questionable, but I mean, um, it wasn't it wasn't a gigantic ship, so I don't know. I, I could I didn't get a good sense of what the scale exactly was, but it didn't look it didn't look too huge that it wouldn't be able to land. But yeah, I know I know that's the conventional wisdom would indicate that you would have a, a shuttle that would take you between the planet and your starship. But when Alien came out in 1979, and Teresa talked about this a little bit already, the technology the computer technology on that ship was incredibly futuristic uh and now it's hilarious to look at i guarantee you in 25 years when they're using ipads to summon up information on prometheus we're going to laugh and laugh Hmm. and laugh because it's going to seem so antiquated is anyone clear on how like the they're faster than light ships in the alien universe right is anyone clear on the time, how any of the time stuff works? I mean, I was thinking, but it, it, it seems weird to me in Prometheus, where they spend two years in hypersleep, and, but then I'm not even sure how long the journey was supposed to be. But, and I was like, that doesn't, I'm not sure that makes sense. But then I was thinking back to Aliens, and I'm like, I'm not sure it makes sense there either, because if you'll remember, they get a distress call from LV-426, and then they all get into hyperspace, hypersleep pods. But then they get there quickly enough that Nude is still alive. You know, mm-hmm. how long has she been able to survive? Like, no more than a couple of weeks, maybe, at most. So, why do you need to go into stasis for a couple-week journey? And wouldn't it be better to spend that time briefing them and stuff like that, which they barely have time to do? It just, I don't know, it all seems weird to me. I've never found the science in, in any alien film to really make any sense. I mean, it's not, it's, it's like a Star Wars movie. It's just not their priority. Uh, I mean, Matt, you mentioned this uh, infographic, which I haven't seen, but apparently it shows that the way to create a xenomorph is black goo infects a dude who passes it to his se- through his semen into a woman who gives birth to a face hugger that grows into a huge face hugger. <laughs> the infographic basically says engineer plus black goo equals people. Black goo plus people equals crazy, rabid zombie people. Crazy, rabid zombie people plus normal people equals giant squid face hugger. And then engineer plus giant squid face hugger equals xenomorph. How do you get a squid thing from a rabid zombie and a human woman? I don't know, because there is a xenomorph on the mural in that, you know, that engineer cave Mm -hmm. yeah they've encountered this species before did they run experiments like this on women i mean how do they know the engineers were on earth though right because they somehow they were definitely 
I mean, but I mean, in in prehistoric times, they were on Earth because they somehow communicated their location or the location of their secret weapons base to cavemen. Although that, uh, I have <laughs> to say that the scene where uh, the the autodoc scene, the sort of uh, yeah. automated cesarean section, that was one of the most. Every, like everyone in the theater was screaming at the top of their lungs during that scene. I mean, that was just one of the most intense uh, things I've seen in a long time. One one problem I had with the autodoc scene was, I mean, obviously it's it's a bit cringe inducing, but um, I was a little puzzled by the anesthetic situation. Like, why did she have to manually administer the anesthetic? Like, shouldn't that thing have like like be dosing her like based on what she told it to do surgery wise like I, I don't get that at all she had that little she had that little hypo spray looking thing that she was stabbing herself with and at some point she in, in the middle of the procedure she stabbed herself again with it i saw a headline that this movie was calibrated toward men i thought that was interesting i mean certainly some of the women seemed even more like squicked out by the autodoxian than I was. I mean, Teresa, what do you think about that? I mean, does I mean, do do you think that there's a gender difference in how people see this movie at all? Yeah, I think so. Definitely. I mean, for me, I got a little squicked out when they mentioned that Shaw was infertile at all, you know, and she's still, you know, crying about it with her boyfriend when he makes this offhand comment about creating life. That to me was like, really that's the whole purpose of a woman to Hmm. give birth i mean she just made this huge discovery that could change the course of humankind but you know she's still not feeling like a complete woman because you know she can't have babies you know from in for me to watch that scene where she's you know getting that cesarean or you know removal of the foreign object because they wouldn't say abortion in a Hmm. movie like this uh, yeah, it definitely, it definitely bothered me because throughout the Alien franchise, that sort of rape is not gendered. And throughout this movie, you know, sure, the men all kind of get it too, but it's very punishing to the woman in particular that she has to like gestate this creature. And I get it that he wants to make a sort of virgin birth correlation subvert it make it something awful but yeah i did not like shaw as a character very much because i feel like she's supposed to be the new ripley i didn't get that strength with her i felt it in vickers but shaw i found very weepy and to have her be the heart of the movie and be soft i didn't like it and she had moments where she was great when she's swinging around that axe she looked really good she looked tough and i believed it but the way they handled gestating this creature and the pregnancy and the virgin birth did not like it. That didn't bother me that the machine was configured for men. I just figured it's, you know, it was for Peter Wayland. You know, there's only right. 12. He made it just to him. I saw some people online did complain that the machine was, you know, only configured for a man. But to me, that was like one of the things that made complete sense to me. Well, I mean, just speaking of Peter Wayland, I mean, what did you guys think of A, that he turns out to be on the ship, and B, that Vickers turns out to be his daughter? I thought that Vickers turning out to be his daughter was actually fairly obvious. Like, I, I saw that coming, and I mean, it just because it seemed like there, it wasn't clear why she was on the ship. 
Because it's like, she kind of seems like she's the captain, except she's not the captain because Idris Elba's the captain, you know? I, I just, I just figured that, like, you know, once it was revealed that he was there, I was like, oh, that must be his daughter. Did that serve, serve any purpose? I think when you look at her compared to David, that's where it becomes important, you know, because Vickers always has something to prove. Peter Whalen talks about David being the closest thing he'll have to a son, and that's somehow more important and worthy of mention than his daughter who's in the in the room. You know, she's there on the ship, and she's his daughter, but she just doesn't measure up as much compared to his son. He's, he doesn't have that pride in her because, because of his personality, his ego, his love for himself, and his desire to want to be a god. Yeah, it didn't come as a surprise to me that Vickers was his daughter, because to me, she moved very similar to David. And it felt very intentional to me that they both mirrored each other in similar looks, similar mannerisms. I I mean, I I thought all that stuff with Vickers, the sort of Vickers, David, Whalen triangle was potentially interesting. But like a lot of things in the movie, I didn't feel like it ever really paid off. I mean, it sort of sets up this thing, but then it's kind of dropped. And then she just gets run over by the alien spaceship, which I thought was mm-hmm. kind of ridiculous. And she never makes any important choice at the climax of the movie or anything, which seems strange to me. No, I, I actually don't know why they kill her. I think that there was more to do with in the relationship between her and David. There was more to do in the relationship with her and Shaw. And she would have provided, I think, in any potential sequel, not just star power of having Shelley's throne in your movie, but also creating a more dynamic triangle. I was actually kind of disappointed to discover that she wasn't a robot because she certainly was acting like one. Um, and, you know, and the captain even calls her out and, and sort of questions it. And then she decides to have sex with him to prove that she's not a robot or something. I don't know. I don't know about that. But, you know, because uh, I kind of like the idea of like David being the obvious robot on the ship and then to have uh, sort of a secret robot that would have sort of played into what we know of Whalen Corporation and, and, and other situations. I mean, because that's what happens in Alien. But I, I sort of like the misdirection of of the or the potential misdirection of having like, you know, the one robot on the ship who's obviously there because he's, you know, he's not even in hypersleep or anything. Um, and then you have one that's sort of secretly there um, because she was in 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 the cryos chamber. So I, I've, I've heard people suggest that you're supposed to wonder if Vickers is a robot and if it's supposed to be ambiguous and it may be. Ridley Scott is repeating the trick from, you know, the in Blade Runner, mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. the the idea of the question of whether Deckard is a replicant or not became this big, this big uh, controversy uh, that people talked about a lot because it makes no sense either way. Because uh, apparently he wanted Deckard to be a replicant and everyone else thought that was a dumb idea. I personally agree with him. And he kept doing new cuts to make it more and more to to get his way more and more. Yeah, I mean, obviously, when she calls him father, she could also you know, she could mean that she is a an android as well. Well, but, of course, because um, Roy Batty says that to Tyrell in Blade Runner. Yeah, too. I caught yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> I walked out going. He quoted. He quoted Roy Batty. And by the way, who would be a better choice to play Roy Batty in the Blade Runner remake than than Michael Fassbender? Hmm. How awesome would that be? Hmm. Totally agree. I really think he said he based a lot of his performance off of Sean Young in Blade Runner. Rutger Hauer and David Bowie in The Man Who Fell to Earth. And then, of course, you know, Peter O'Toole and Lawrence of Arabia, which I love seeing that even for the tiniest second in 3D on a big screen. 
Um, but I don't know, you know, what bothered me about Vickers is you're supposed to, I think you're supposed to hate her, but I didn't just because she was a company woman that didn't automatically make me want to hate her. And the first time I saw the movie, I thought her death was completely ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is. Run sideways. <laughs> it's not that hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think I, I think you maybe tweeted that or something or somebody did. And, and, and I remembered seeing that, um uh on, online beforehand and and when i was watching it i was like yeah oh my god what are they doing why are they just running <laughs> in the same path as the freaking ship that's gonna roll them over just get out of the way exactly but now i want the second time i saw it i kind of wondered if maybe this is me trying to you know maybe i'm a ridley scott apologist or something but i feel like maybe they wanted it to look like Vickers had blinders on. She's this company woman. She couldn't be focused on anything else but the company, inheriting it from her father. So she had these blinders on that made her only able to kind of go in one direction metaphorically. And somehow it was supposed to be poetic justice that this giant ship rolled onto her. Well, Shaw does the same thing, though. Yeah, I, 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 I thought the same thing, Teresa. And I, I agree, it could be a really good character moment. But just the way it's shot, it doesn't come across at all. Um, no. I mean, can we talk about what was interesting about David? I mean, he was the best part of the movie to me. I mean, aside from the gorgeous visuals, he was such a fantastic character. Chilling, okay. his whole body language. Okay, his well, character was... Teresa, earlier you were attributing motives to David, which I, I wasn't... I thought of... A potentially problematic thing here is that you're not sure what he, why he's doing what he's doing. I mean, like you said that he has this contempt for Wayland, right? I mean, how are you so sure about that? Well, because of he came right out and said it. He said, uh, you know, every child longs to see their parent die. You know, maybe some of the characters are a bit cartoony. It's like scientist has faith issues, cold businesswoman has daddy issues, robot has human issues. But I thought David's issues were really interesting because as the humans are looking for their creators, David is there with his creator. You know, he could ask his creator everything. And I think his time alone to contemplate, he develops his own personality when he's not around humans. He's coming to understand that as an android, like everything that he's been designed to do is for the comfort of humans. And I think he starts to really hate that. The way he talks to Holloway with that contempt in his voice, the hatred he feels for his father, you know, wanting to destroy his creator. Maybe that's what the engineers are worried about with humans, too, that they will come and try to destroy their parents. So before they get to that level, maybe they need to be wiped out to protect themselves. Wasn't in Lost, didn't like nine out of the 12 main characters have serious daddy issues? They pretty much all have daddy issues or parent issues or sibling issues. Or the geologist that, issues. Or ge- The thing that ties them all together is they are all betrayers and they've all been betrayed. Damon Lindelof writes faith trumps science stories. That's what he does. Um, and people continue to be surprised when that's what he writes. Um, I, or, or I, furious. Yeah. Uh, they continue to be surprised and furious. Well, sorry. I mean, you know, he uh, to date, you know, he wrote what Lost and I'm not sure what else. But I mean, and, you know, obviously Prometheus. But it's like I, I, I didn't think that 
because he had done that once for like this seven season show that that I I should expect him to just keep doing that same thing over and over. I thought maybe he might write something original or, or, you know, not rely on the same same conventions that he that he's been writing and everything else. Did anyone not hate the faith stuff in this movie? Did it strike me as offensive? No. Was it? redundant because it seems like every single movie now needs to be a messianic journey. Yeah, a little bit, but that's not an issue that I have with faith. It's an issue I have with screenwriters. Um, I'll actually actually tell you, Matt, the part I found offensive, honestly, was the part where the robot says, oh, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly how it went, but it was the way I took it anyway was like the robot asks, why do you keep having faith? And she says, well, because I'm human and you're you don't because you're a robot. And that's the point I was like, fuck you, movie, you know, hmm. like, what is the movie saying? Like, I'm not human because I don't have faith. Like, I don't see that as a defining human characteristic in any way, shape or form. Yeah, the same way that being infertile doesn't make a woman less of a woman. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. I think it's really good that we're getting to a point where we can stand up and protest the the overwhelming number of stories that are told from the perspective of Christian men or religious men. And it seems like we're finally, maybe this has to do with the internet and the sort of um, democratization of public speech, but it's good to see that, that like, yeah, finally, you know, people have been writing movies with crappy messages like this for a long time. The, the way it depicts women, the way it sort of makes religious statements about the human condition. It used to be that everyone just had to kind of like swallow that pill. But now uh, we can finally say, no, we don't all agree with that and give us something else, please. I mean, I could see the end of, end of this movie, actually, you could read it as a tragic ending that uh, Shaw has all these experiences, like 100% of the evidence of which convinces her she should just pack it in and go home. And she's still convinced to keep on doing the same stupid stuff that she was convinced of at the beginning of the movie. And if they were playing just like a different kind of music at the end of the movie, <laughs> or, you know, the scene where she takes off in the spaceship, that cast it as a tragedy, the sort of tragedy of never learning <laughs> important lessons, I would like that movie a lot better. Well, one of my, I mean, one of my big reactions to Pr- Pr- Prometheus is, I mean, I enjoyed it for what it is, but... There's just so much art built around such dumb, just fundamentally dumb ideas. I mean, like, well, I mean, people say, like, this movie asks big questions. I'm not sure what the big questions are. Like, did aliens make us? No. Uh, you know, um, was Jesus an alien? No. What's, what's better? What's more important, faith or reason? Reason. Um, those, you know, those are pretty easy questions, actually. And so, I I just, you know, since we interviewed Kim Stanley Robinson in our our last episode, I was just reading his novel 2312. And just like going from the level of science fictional sophistication of that to this was like jumping into ice water or something. Hmm. It's like such a sudden shock. And it just makes me think like, why can't this level of cinematic virtuosity Mm -hmm. be applied to a story with real science fiction concepts in it, you know? Stuff that the audience hasn't seen a million times already. Stuff that could actually happen. You should call call uh, James Cameron and find out where the AMC series of Red Mars is, because that could be it. I don't think that that I don't think that they could adapt those books into um, 
into a rip roaring action adventure story. It is a you know high minded thing. All, all of all of Kim Stanley Robinson's work is, I think, to a, to an extent. So, you know, um, yeah, I, I agree with that, Dave. I think that we're sort of in a rut in terms of what our genre films are. But when has Hollywood ever taken risks? Not ever. And it's like it just makes me makes me very depressed about the whole industry. And and and, and as we were driving home from the movies, I was asking my wife. Uh, I was I was asking Christy. I was like, "How do these people get to be screenwriters?" That's what I want to know. Like, okay, so we have we we know all these. We actually personally know we're 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 lucky enough to personally know like tons of brilliant people who are writing books these days, right? And it's like we've read their books, we appreciate their work, we talk to them as people, and we interview them, and and they're genius. You know, they they have all these great ideas, and it's like. How come they're writing books and, 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 and we, and we make a certain amount of money writing books, right? And then there's these people who have a fraction of the talent and they're writing screenplays and they're getting paid like 10 times, a hundred times as much or whatever. And it's like, and they can't even tell a story that makes any sense. How does this happen? My theory is that, uh, novelists agents have offices in New York and no publishers and screenwriters agents have offices in Los Angeles and no producers. The other thing I'll say is that I suspect that the best fiction writers that, that we know were they hired to write Prometheus or Cowboys vs. Aliens or any other, you know, sort of big budget sci-fi movie after 35 producers get their hands on a script 35 development execs try to stick their thumbprint on it it'll be crap it doesn't matter how good the original writer is the truth yeah. is all of these writers that work in hollywood are really good but then they just get mangled in in production yeah joss whedon talked about it when you know he was struggling to write alien resurrection i don't think he quite meant to make it as god awful as it was but he had Fox breathing down his neck. You know, I wrote an article, of, a retrospective on Alien 3. That was in production hell for a number of years. William Gibson, David Tui, Vince Ford. All of these people wrote scripts for it, and they just kept getting rejected and tweaked and tested and failed. It sounds terrible. Like, that's why I don't think anybody terribly smart would want to be a screenwriter. It sounds like hell. Yeah, and to be fair, I know the number of, brilliant writers that work in, in science fiction that I know of that have attempted to work in screenwriting. None of them have been terribly successful at it, it seems. I mean, like George Martin worked there for several years and he had some success. But, you know, nothing that he produced as a screenwriter could approach the genius of what he produced as a writer, uh, certainly. And then uh, also I know like John Varley um, actually worked for several years in Hollywood, apparently writing many, many words of fiction, um, and none of it actually even got produced. So I guess that's the other thing is, you know, that, that can be very unfulfilling, I guess, because you can end up in that trap where you're getting very well paid to do this stuff, but then nothing ever gets made or produced or anything and sends people uh, back to writing books. All right, so how about to, to wrap this thing up, what movie do you think is better, Prometheus or Alien 3? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alien 3 is way better. Actually, uh, Christy and I just watched it, and um, we, uh, I, I don't actually understand, uh, like, I remembered not liking it, um, and I mean, to be fair, when I watched it originally, I must have seen the theatrical cut, and then um, when I just rewatched it, I watched the um, the director's cut, um, or the special edition, or whatever they're calling it, and like, I don't know, it's not bad, 
I mean, it's not great, but I mean, it's it's pretty good. It was enjoyable to watch. Uh, I, I at no point was I watching it. I was like, oh god, this is terrible. Because we did then go watch, tried to watch Alien Resurrection, and that was like that. Like we were half an hour into it. It's like, oh my god, this is so terrible. Can we stop? Like it's not <laughs> worth it for the podcast. Um, so you know, Alien Three is way better than than Prometheus. Now, as far as Alien Four goes, I would say Prometheus is better than that because Alien Four is unwatchable, and Prometheus, despite its flaws, is watchable. I think that Prometheus is better than Alien 3 because the biggest crime that Alien 3 commits is that Aliens sets up a promise, a very clear contract with the audience about what the sequel to that movie will be. And then the creators of Alien 3 stupidly and awkwardly betrayed all of that killing two principal characters right at the beginning of the movie for absolutely no reason it should start with the survivors all arriving it can i mean i think it could mirror uh the plot of aliens that there's now more than one person arriving or being picked up or whatever i mean it doesn't matter what happens to those characters those characters can die over the course of the film but to do it to do it in such a uh, cursory way is what seemed totally wrongheaded. I loved the fact. All right, first off, I'm going to say I'm a huge Michael Bean fan. I loved Hicks; <laughs> thought he was great. But I loved the ballsiness of that move. That was like pure nihilism. Like the alien has just stripped away everything from Ripley's life, every single thing, and the only thing left in Alien Three is her. You know, she gets rid of everything like as easily as she shaves her head. And instead of getting this movie about a more conventional family, like the surrogate family that was being set up, we have this shell-shocked, tough-as-nails female character who just doesn't give a shit about anything right now except for keeping that alien from affecting more lives on other planets, on Earth, getting into Whale and Yutani's hands and being used as a weapon, you know, and she died a hero at the end of that movie, and they should have let her stay dead, you know, for obvious reasons. The sequel was so terrible. I loved it. I think the movie that we would have gotten, what was originally planned, was a two-parter where, you know, there were contract negotiations going on between Fox and Sigourney Weaver. She wasn't going to be in the third movie. So it was just going to be like Michael Bean, you know, Hicks and Newt getting involved with Whale and Utani. And then for the fourth movie, the three of them would have come together and the battle would have taken place on Earth. That would have been a huge blockbuster type movie, I think. But instead, what we get is this weird, dark art house movie. So it's a terrible sequel, but it's a really good movie on its own. And I think I would rather see... You know, I preferred Alien 3 to Prometheus. You know, the theatrical cut, the assembly cut is like the definitive version. If you haven't seen the assembly cut, then you can't really say you've seen Alien 3. So what do you guys think is going to be the legacy of Prometheus? You know, I mean, we look back on, like we're looking back on Alien 3 and like, yeah, it's not as bad as we thought at the time or whatever. I mean, what do you think people in 20 years or whatever are going to look back on Prometheus and say? I think the legacy of Prometheus will be largely decided by sequels to Prometheus. I think that 
every movie sort of exists in the context of its larger series. And that if there's more that comes after, it will affect the way that people view this movie. Just like now, the existence of the previous Alien films are having a very large impact on how people are viewing Prometheus. Uh, I, I think I think in some part it's going to be determined by the box office and how big of a success Prometheus turns out to be um, or not. And I mean, that seems to be doing fine so far, but I, I'm a little troubled by by the prospect that we're going to get more of these big science fiction epics that somehow turn to be full of creationist bullshit or whatever, you know, or other faith related bullshit that I'm not interested in. And I hope that's not the case, but I can see like, Oh, well, you know, Prometheus was very successful. Let's, let's explore more stuff like that. And I mean, I'm sure there's other stuff out, out, out like that out there that people have been trying to pedal around. Um, I'm hopeful that the legacy will be that we'll get more beautiful science fiction movies shot like this that at least attempt to be intelligent um, and hopefully will succeed where Prometheus failed. Like, it would be kind of cool is like since Ridley Scott directed this one, if they got James Cameron directed the direct the sequel and then David Fincher to direct the third one. But, uh, you know, for love of God, for the love of God, <laughs> do not let Jean-Pierre Jeannot direct the fourth one. OK, just promise me that universe. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Matt, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Always great to have the people on Wired.com uh, yell at me on the Internet. <laughs> and Teresa, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much for having me. And, of course, thanks to Sean and McGuire for being our guest today. So just one quick announcement. My buddy Dustin Thomas, who I met while studying screenwriting at USC, is interested in filming my short story, The Second Rat. He actually came very close a few years ago to selling it as a major TV series. And what he's decided to do now is just shoot a short film adaptation so he'll have something to show at film festivals to try to drum up interest in the story for a feature or a series. So in July, he'll be launching a Kickstarter to try to fund that. And if you're interested in learning more, just head on over to thesecondrat.com, where you can also read the short story version for free. Okay, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.